Hello, welcome to the Fantastic Fiction and KGB Reading Series. Fantastic Fiction is a monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, hosted by Ellen Datlow and me, Matthew Kressel. We spotlight well-known and up-and-coming science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors, and admission is always free. We publish a monthly podcast and video so people who can't attend the in-person event can still enjoy the readings. If you'd like to support the series, you can donate at kgbfantasticfiction.org slash support. Anyway, on to the show. Hello, everybody. Hello. Lovely to see you. Welcome to uh, Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Oops, we don't want our coats to show out the window. Um, I'm, thank you, everyone, for coming, and I'm glad that I'm seeing people masked again because whether we like it or not, apparently the numbers have been going up again, not to scare anyone, <laughs> along with the flu and the other thing, the RBS or whatever it is. But anyway, um, welcome. Hmm? Thank you. Yeah. Um, but anyway, thank you all for coming. And uh, Matt Kressel is not here tonight, and our substitute is not here tonight. Um, Teresa DeLucci was going to do it, but her husband came down with COVID. So she didn't, but she was worried and didn't want to come. So I have another co-host tonight, Andrea Kale. Please raise your hand, Andrea. Please welcome her. Right. So anyway, I assume, I, Matt sometimes gives the history. I'm not doing that because I cannot remember what the history is. We've been going on for over 20 years. I've been doing it for a long time. Matt and I have been co-hosting together for a long time, at least 10 years now, I think. And it's always, um, it's always free. We hope you will drink. We'll, you can drink alcohol and non-alcohol, and please tip your bartender, Mary, very well. So she will keep you hydrated and happy. And um, what else? I have our next few readers over the next um, several months that I can tell you about. In January 11th, we have Christopher Savasco and Eliza Greenblatt. Eliza is here, please say hello. She'll be here next month reading. February 8th, we have Marie Vibert and Jeffrey Ford, who's coming in from Ohio, to read for us. March 8th, we have Scott Lynch and Elizabeth Baer, who are coming in from Massachusetts. Um, April 12th, we have Peng Shepard and Paul Park. May 10th, John Langan and Paul Tremblay. June 14th, Nathan Ballingrud and Dale Bailey. July 12th, we have Michael Sisko and David Surface. And August 9th, we have Steve Berman and Tentatively, Holly Black. We're not sure. I just got an email from her assistant. Um, we think she's going to be able to do it, but it is kind of far in advance. So that's who's coming up. But in the meantime, have I forgotten anything else? I don't remember. The usual. Well, the people who come here all the time, did I forget anything? <laughs> Remind me. Uh, I'm not doing the history, no. People know it or you can look it up. You can look up the history of the, KG, uh, the Fantastic Future KGB series online. Oh, I know what it is. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I swore that I would not. We had a GoFundMe, and we made our, we have, I think, two or three years. I can't remember now. If it, we got it for three years, I think, which will fund us. We'll, we pay the writers a little bit. We take them to dinner and pay for their drinks. And, um, and I said that if we made our limit, I would never bug you again for three years. <laughs> However, Matt started saying, oh, you know, he started posting, you know, we're still, our GoFundMe's still going, please give us more money. And I said, well, I'm not saying anything because I swore I'd leave everyone alone. So should you choose to donate, we do have... A, but I um, can say 
Okay, we have, Amy's going to say it. KTV, well, the Fantastic Fiction, there is a link. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> and I meant to tell, I know what I was going to say, that it used to be the third Wednesday of the month, and now it's the second Wednesday of the month. It's every second Wednesday of the month. Rain or come shine, come snowstorms next year, next year, next month, hopefully not. But anyway, our first reader tonight is Cassandra Kaur, who is the USA Today best-selling author of Nothing But Blackened Teeth, and an award-winning game writer in a Bram Stoker World Fantasy, Ignite British Fantasy, Shirley Jackson, and Locus Award finalist. Oh, I'm not talking to, I can't read this and talk to It's not, it makes me, that's fine, that's okay. It's okay, it's all right, I'm almost done. <laughs> uh, they have written for video games like Sunless Skies, Gotham Knights, Wasteland 3, and Rainbow Six Siege. Siege. Siege, sorry, Siege. Their most recent book is the collection Some Breakable Things. Please welcome Cassandra Kaur. I've been knocking over everything this last week, so I'm terrified I'm going to destroy the bar. Um, so a little bit of an introduction. Richard and I co-wrote a new novel that is coming up soon-ish. It's called The Dead Takes the A-Train. And we are both reading chapters from it tonight. Mine is uh, trigger warning, domestic abuse, verbal abuse, uh, people being really not nice to one another in public settings. Uh, for once, there will not be any gore, which if you know my work is unusual. Um, anyway, this is a chapter cut from the finished book. Um, it introduces a key character. Her name is Sarah. She is our protagonist's former lover, maybe sort of kind of, you know, love interest. Anyway, <laughs> very distracted by a flash. The party was on the rooftop of the firm where Daniel worked, and when Sarah arrived, it was in full swing. Waiters in white swanned between <laughs> I'm very distracted by the camera right now. I'm sorry. Please don't blast the photographer. Too late. Waiters in white swanned between the assembled guests, faring silver trays mounted with delicate French pastries, with bacon smothered scallops, and with asparagus strangled in black caviar, with anything and everything that might be praised for its cost. As Sarah stepped onto the roof, her throat bangled with enormous pearls. She thought she glimpsed the waitress carrying a platter of deep-fried ortolans, those little wretched songbirds the French were eating into fiction. But that had to be too much for even Daniel's firm. At least she hoped. Sarah, you're here. At the mention of her name, she turned. It was Annabelle Wong, one of the senior directors, and the only non-white, non-male dignitary on that particular board, a rangy Asian woman with a coyote's grin Daniel had repeatedly lambasted, describing it as cruel and clearly sociopathic. He loathed her to no end, hated both her gleeful insistence on complicating his career trajectory and her indifference to his charm. Sarah, though, she loved her. Mrs. Wong, Sarah wrestled down the urge to curtsy and beamed at Annabelle. She would never admit it out loud, but she really did adore this woman. Annabelle slapped her hand, please, Annabelle or Huyin. 
Mrs. Wong is why my husband tries to get people to call me. Sarah smiled at that. Four years ago, she'd met the woman's husband. He was meek and willowy, a sculptor with elegant hands and better cheekbones, dressed perpetually in wispy linen ensembles. She couldn't imagine him being that presumptuous, especially not in context of his spouse. But men were capable of anything. Sarah learned that the hard way. Annabelle then, I don't want to butcher your Chinese name. Sarah dialed up the brilliance of her smile. It's always good to see you. And you, although I have thought that after that fiasco at the office, Sarah interrupted. It was a misunderstanding. The warmth drained from Annabelle's face. Listen, I know we're not that close, but from one woman to another, when a man is willing to embarrass you in public, he, he didn't embarrass me. He shouted at you like you were a child. Dan is passionate. Dan is a fucking maniac, said Annabelle. I've seen how he is at work. I can't imagine what he's like when he isn't worrying about whether the HR department will take notice. He's kind, said Sarah, her tone sharper than she had planned. Daniel was kind. He did care. He volunteered when he could, and without complaint, he donated to animal shelters. Last year, when his best friend's mother was beset by cancer, Daniel anonymously funded the entirety of her treatment. No one knew except for Sarah. I know it doesn't seem like it. Not the way he talks sometimes, but Daniel really is a good man. How old do you think I am? I, sorry? I want to know. How old do you think I am? Sarah's ensuing laughter fed it quickly into a nervous giggle. I don't understand how this is relevant. Humor me, said Annabelle, face half in golden shadow. How old do you think I am? Old enough, Sarah thought, to see through my bullshit. 42. Annabelle threw her head back and laughed. You're sweet, but we both know you weren't even trying there. I'm 59 this year, more than old enough to be your mother. My mother would sell all her children to look as good as you. <laughs> Annabelle slanted a wry smile at Sarah. Flattery gets you everywhere, some people. Not with others. Guess which category I'm in. The one that doesn't like flattery? The older woman winked. Bingo. Going back to my point. I'm too old to believe anyone when they say things like this. I've seen this before. Friends with myself and that idiot first husband. My daughter. Annabelle shook her head. It doesn't matter, she said. Sarah could hear, however, the story that Annabelle wouldn't put to words. It was an old one, one she'd heard a hundred times before, consoled friends or shook her head to new, like a song she hated but couldn't unbutton from her lungs. It was her story, too, but like Annabelle, she wasn't going to talk about it. Not here, not for a while. Maybe one day when she gnarled into blessed irrelevance, too stooped to hold up the male interest, she might let someone help her chart the scars, map the places where she'd fractured finally, like the small bones of her wrist, caught just for a second, just long enough, in a door as it banged shut like a chastened mouth. I'm sorry that happened to your daughter, said Sarah. I, Sarah, honey, you look great. Long ago, Someone joked that Sarah owned a smile for every occasion, that she accessorized with them, always with the finesse of a diplomat forced to stop a war. From that day forward, she tried to pay attention, taking time to analyze the minutia of her expressions just to see if they're right. And it turns out they were. 
about this and so many other things. Dana included. Darling, she said in return, as her boyfriend carved through the sea of guests, the pouty blonde dangling from one arm, both clearly drunk out of their minds, Sarah put on a smile she kept reserved only for him, bedroom eyes, a corner of her mouth crooked slightly more than its counterpart. She did not let go of that smile even when she saw the lipstick stain mottling the tendon cabling the right of Daniel's thick throat, a smudge bloom of color almost hidden by his turtleneck collar. This wouldn't be his first indiscretion. She couldn't envision it being his last. Yet still, Sarah raised herself on her toes as Daniel scooped her into his arms and pressed a cool kiss to his cheek while his blonde hanger-on watched. This close, she could smell her perfume on him, as silage familiar, roses, wet, abundant chemical. Huh. So this was Daniel's office squeeze. You look gorgeous tonight, said Daniel, peeling away, his eyes running down the bare hilt of his sternum. Sarah's wardrobe was more provocative than Daniel would have preferred, and she knew it, but only just. A sequined azure jumpsuit and black kitten heels and a handbag too small to do anything but provide a glint of ember to complement the blue of her outfit. A bit risque for a company party, though, don't you think? Oh, please, said Annabelle before Sarah could answer. Evelyn's barely dressed. Sarah looks like a nun in comparison. More to the point, what are you doing, Evelyn, on your arm instead of Sarah? Pre-gamed at a bar. Instead of drinking at an event with the open bar, Annabelle countered. The event would have freezed champagne, the expensive wines, the Jesus with too much money scotch. Look, said Daniel, I know what this is. You're worried I'm cheating on Sarah. But we're a modern couple. We're in it for life. Now life's not exactly fun if we stick with the same routine over and over again. Sarah knows. Right, baby? God, you're so full of shit, said Annabelle under her breath. It's fine, really, said Sarah, schooling her voice for confidence, not wanting a confrontation. The thought of having a fight here, I mean, all this beauty, everything in its place, all white and pristine, with the entire office in attendance. The thought nauseated her. Or was it that Daniel said they were in it for life? Daniel's right, Sarah continued. We don't talk about it much, but we do occasionally pursue extracurricular activities together. Together? Annabelle repeated flatly. I'm not really willing to talk about my private life in public, said Sarah, willing Annabelle to drop the subject to understand this wasn't personal. In spite of how her voice had ossified into something stern and unhappy, she liked Annabelle. With luck, the older woman would recognize this and wouldn't see Sarah's defense of Daniel as a slight against her attendance of feminism. But a protective maneuver, because God knows Daniel was going to be a pissy little bitch about this later. <laughs> Me neither, said Daniel, roping an arm around Sarah's shoulder. No offense, Annabelle, but step off. It's not like we talk about the fact you took a child groom for your third husband. Sebastian is 49, said Annabelle. And you're what, 100? As Daniel roared with laughter, something in Sarah broke. It was just so petty, 
so small minded, so fucking crass to weaponize Annabelle's age against her. Time wasn't something any of them could help. People grew old. Plus, Annabelle had aged spectacularly, at least to Sarah. And having that go unacknowledged because Daniel was too drunk to come up with something better as an insult, it felt stupid and it felt embarrassing. It was terrible. If Daniel was going to be an asshole, he could do them all a favor and actually try instead of being such a child about it all. Shut the fuck up. Sarah regretted it the moment the words left her, although not enough to back down. She torqued away from Daniel's arm and stared at him. I've been wasting my time. The thought gonged through her, clear as a bell denoting last call at the bar. He was handsome now, but that wouldn't last forever. Sarah could see where his cruelties, his sneering would crept his face, and how an elasticity had gone from his skin to flash with sag and puddle into the visage of a bitter old man who never loved anything but himself. Sarah, baby, this isn't you. Oh, fuck you, said Sarah, relishing how her mouth pissed around the consonants, the bite of them, their guttural sonics. To both her delight and her dread, Daniel recoiled. Later, no doubt, there will be a reckoning. But it was already inevitable, so why the fuck should she care? Sarah Damo could choose her own road to damnation. It's exactly me. Daniel untangled from his blonde, expression taking on its salesman polish. Let's talk about it at home. No. Sarah sped the world. No, he smells. Sarah, said Daniel, voice brittle as a smell. She said no, Annabelle cut in. Her voice cooled the glacial warning. What fucking part of that didn't you understand? This is a private matter at a company event, said Annabelle. Daniel clenched his jaw hard enough for the muscle underneath to shiver which is why we're having the rest of this conversation at home, away from the party. He took a step towards Sarah, who skidded out of reach. Daniel was angry, now she could tell. Still wasn't enough to defuse her own fury, in for a penny, in for the goddamn pound. Annabelle shrode into the space that Sarah had vacated, five feet eight of wiry muscle to Daniel's quarterback bulk. She jutted her chin at him, challenging the cock of her hip, and Daniel, he actually growled her in reply. This isn't your business, Annabelle. Oh, fuck that. You're being an asshole in company of time. Of course it's my business. It's my job to see if the junior. Annabelle grinned around the words as she said it, made it clear in the denunciation precisely what she thought about him, which is nothing, nothing at all. Executives are worth keeping around. Frankly, I'm beginning to have doubts about you. My performance evels are immaculate. Yeah, but you're still a little shit. Annabelle replied breezily, slanting a wolfish smile at Sarah. Hey, look, Sebastian and I don't mind taking in Trey sometimes. God knows he owes me for the amount of cats he made us foster fail over the last five years. We've got a guest room. The light teeks of them all, all garbed them in gold. Rafted by his hair, Daniel's eyes reflects Amika in their shadow. He seemed powerful, but suggested his stance. Sarah was reminded of the fake houses on every stage set, intended to impress but otherwise hollow, purposeless. Fake. Daniel was hollow. Everything about him denuded now what felt like a 15-year curse was hollow. And Sarah felt like she was waking up half-drowned but conscious again, gasping for air, choking on how much she hated that she paid those years in. I think I'll take you up on that. Sarah? Daniel asked. Goodbye, Daniel. Her joy singed her with its unexpected intensity. 
all Sarah could think about then was how grateful she was for the universal bond between women who had suffered, women who had survived. She wasn't alone here. Annabelle knew the road Sarah would take. It would be a long one, but it'd be okay. There were others there, marking the landmarks, the footpaths, the ways to recovery. It would be okay, she told herself, turning on a lean heel to escape back into the crowd, confident this was over. Then, pain. Whistling up her left arm, corrosive and how it ate at every other thought until there was nothing but awareness of its presence. Sarah guessed, conscious mind and brains and finally aligning in its understanding of her circumstances. Daniel had her wrist in a hand and was squeezing, squeezing so hard at the bones that splinted already, barely beginning to heal from when they crushed him in the dwarf and pressed down on his, with his weight until she begged him to stop, shrieked in his grip. Baby, you're not going to let a relationship go down the drain like that, are you? And Sarah couldn't breathe. Daniel was rolling her bones in his palm like he was trying to puzzle out if there was an angle from which she could break them completely, and her head swam. Everything in her emptied to make room for the pain. The fairy lights began flashes of orange upon velvet, and Sarah needed to find some way to keep breathing as it hurt. Everything hurt. Daniel, it was Evelyn of all people who spoke up. Not every word quavered on the way out. Come on, she doesn't look like she likes that shut up, bitch. I'm calling security. Annabelle's voice clicked in angry. Over what? Me holding her wrist? He snaked her arm up, eliciting a thin cry from Sarah. You're hurting her. She's delicate. What do you want? Jesus, fuck, security. It's okay. Sarah exhaled her words, trembling. At her release, the pressure on her wrist lightened. Enough for some semblance, a rational thought to cohere, although it was ultimately pointless. The pain had recessed any desire for mutiny, left only an animal instinct to please and flatter so as to evade any resumption of her previous torture. Daniel's right, she said. I can't believe I'm hearing this. We're going to go home, said Sarah wincingly. And we're going to talk through this, because that's what you do when you're in it for life, right? Yes, exactly, baby. Sarah forced the smile into place when she had way too much cause to use as a flake. And that's it. take a 10 minute break. Uh, please drink, enjoy each other, talk to each other, and we'll be back in about 10 minutes. Thank you. <coughs> is Richard Cadry. Uh, Richard is the New York Times best-selling author of the Sandman Slim Supernatural Noir series. Sandman Slim was included in Amazon's 100 science fiction and fantasy books to read in a lifetime. Some of Cadry's other books include King Bullet, The Grand Dark, and Butcher Bird. He's also written screenplays and for comics such as Heavy Metal, Lucifer, and Hellblazer. Please welcome Richard Cadre. Hi, thanks for coming out tonight. Can I fit here? Let's see, there we go. Thank you. 
Yeah. Um, we're both reading from the Dead Take the A Train tonight, and I'm reading um, a section that follows Cass's, and it concerns um, another character named Julie, who is a best friend with uh, Sarah. Um, this section might run a little over 20 minutes. Is that okay yeah. with people? All right. Um, here we go. Julie's latest intern, Brad, was a tall, pale slab of Midwestern beefsteak with a Clark Kent curl of hair over his forehead. He was good-looking, Sears catalog hunk of handsome, but born too late to be its all-American centerfold. In short, he was exactly the kind of man that normally made Julie run screaming in horror. However, Brad got them in places that would have spat Julie out before her first hello. In this case, it was the lobby of the austerely gorgeous Arturia Estate high-rise in which their quarry roosted. The doorman barely glanced at Brad, but gave Julie the once-over. Like Brad, he was as white as can be, early 20s, and from his carriage, supremely resentful of the red-white velvet uniform he was required to wear behind the black marble check-in desk in the lobby. After, after Brad explained that they had an appointment on the 40th floor, the doorman glanced back at Julie and said, I don't know, man. The buses are clear. Need an official appointment to get in. Brad gave him a sunny smile. I understand completely. That's what we told him. I said, this is going to be a problem for the doorman. But our client, he doesn't want a paper trail. Julie nodded, desperately wanting a cigarette or an extra hundred to bribe the doorman with. But money was out of the question, so Brad was their best chance in. If he couldn't do it, it was time to start kicking doors down, the thought of which gave her the smile for the first time that day. Brad leaned an elbow atop the black marble counter and brightened his smile a notch. Had Julie not known he was a dark magic statistician dreaming of when he could domesticate the stock markets, make them bark and bellow at his behest, she'd have thought he was on the fast track to Congress, or hell. Either way, <laughs> the smile found its mark. Hey, help us out, okay? We promise it won't be more than a half hour, said Brad. Finally, the doorman smiled, thawing under the weight of Brad's gaze. Fine, okay, sure, just don't break anything. He joust his chin in the direction of the vestibule, softly lit in amber. It surfaces, surfaces the same luminous black marble as the counter. Julie could see the bronze edge of the elevator frame and a hint of old-world curlicues rising like the tines of a crown. The doorman said, call the elevator down for you. Don't touch any buttons. If you do, you're going to get stuck, and that's my ass. Julie nodded. Hands off everything. Got it. Brad reached over the counter and fist-bumped the doorman. Thanks, man. Julie turned away so she could roll her eyes in private. Quickly after, the two filed into the elevator, its doors sliding noiselessly open for them. Tinkly bossa nova played as the elevator began to move. Thank fuck, said Julie. What? Thank fuck he listened to you. I was about to go Grizzly Adams on him. <laughs> Julie mumbled. Brad frowned. You could have just messed up his memory. That's what I mean, dumbass, Julie frowned. I don't punch the help. I save that for bosses. But really, though, stick with me, Brad. Don't make silly assumptions, and you're going to get good at stuff. You think so? I know it, said Julie, trying to calm him down. But you gotta pull the stick out of your ass first. Brad beamed firmly. 
Remove stick from ass. Got it. We cool? Like Santa's elves eating ice cream in Alaska. Awesome. Julie hated having to babysit Brad on their jobs, but he was still learning, and he was the best intern she'd ever had. This pretty boy face aside, she didn't want to lose him. Now, do you have any questions about the formalists? Not really. I read up on them, Brad said. They're pretty simple, right? They have mimetic production, reproduction. They nestle in people's brains, first controlling and eating their dreams, then their thoughts. When they suck the brain dry, they eat the rest of the body. Oh, and their spawn does that creepy thing where they can imitate the sounds made by the last thing that their parents ate. Julie nodded, impressed. She said, but this one is different. It's giving out the information it extracts from its victims' brains. I didn't see that in the books, said Brad, puzzled. It's not in the books. It's not anywhere. They don't do it. Only this one does. Is it working for someone? Julie shrugged. Who knows? Why? For money? Julie looked at him, surprised by the question. Why does anybody do magic in New York? It's not about money. Someone is making bank off this kind of information. Um, but that's not our business. We're here to kill it dead, and only that. I know where we're here, said Brad defensively. We do the job, then we're the ones with the money, okay? Calm down. I am calm. As the elevator neared the 40th floor, Julie could hear his voice <clears throat> and how completely not calm it was. She said, how many jobs have we done together? Three? See, we're a team, said Julie, giving him a light bro punch on the arm. I know I've been hard on you today, but it's an important gig. Would it help if I apologized? Only if you meant it. Julie didn't say anything for a minute. Then, we'll get drunk after this. On the good stuff. My treat. Brad looked at her. That's your apology? Pretty much. I'll take it. Julie snapped her fingers and a suitcase strobed into view, clattering onto the floor beside her. A vintage case with bronze caps and burgundy leather. Brad stared at it. What's that for? Backup. Backup for what? In case Tyler lied about the job and is out to fuck us. Pale Brad went even paler. Wait, I don't understand. The elevator dings, saving Julie from further conversation. All right, look sharp, she said, slinking out into the hall. No one was there, thank God. The faint astringent reek of cleaning fluids suggested the janitorial crew had already made their rounds, so there weren't going to be any civilian casualties. Yet. Julie breathed out. She could taste the formulas. Julie could tell it was there. The air seemed filled with effluvium. She swallowed hard against her own revulsion. She really wished she had some vodka. Can you sense it? She whispered to Brad. You're the psychic, not me. We'll work on that. Well, said Brad, let me take over this part, okay? I checked out the building dimensions before we got here. The floor layouts are identical after the 38th floor, so I can run the numbers. His monologue deliquesced into chant chanted mathematical jabber as filamentous gray light seeped from him, billowing outwards, tinseling the bare, sleek furnishings and the pearl-pale pearl walls. Despite herself, Julie was impressed. The sophistry of his spellworking was beyond her. She could try for a lifetime and never come within range of anything so delicate. No. Her magic was as blunt as she was, raw, ballistic energy. Most days, she wore her simplicity as a ma ba badge of honor. Today, she was jealous. 
The light kept spreading, but its increasing volume did nothing to winnow down the emptiness of the hall. At best, it provided contour, a color other than the pale fluorescent. Julie chewed a break in the meat of her thumb and let blood drip onto one of the glowing fibers. Binocular vision granulated into something like sonar, something not quite real. Julie's awareness splintered along the ligature of her intern's spell, a thousand radiant sensory points. Her skin buzzed. Nothing. Just basically nothing. Every few seconds, Julie could almost, but not quite, discern a skittering at the periphery of her regard, as though spider legs withdrawing from a fire, a, sensa a sensation that she was being smiled at. How are we doing, Brad? Anything definite yet? There's something? I can sort of feel it, but it keeps moving away. Keep working, big guy. I have faith in you. Really? You're the man, Brad, hoping to calm him down. Find the formulas and I'll buy you a balloon. Before he could say anything else, the, lightly, the light abruptly converged into a single beam that flickered once, the shot, once, then shot forward along the ceiling towards them. Almost at the same time, Julie heard weight and mass develop in the vents above the tiles. Heard the metal creak as that unseen threat. No, this isn't how it works, babbled the last clot of good sense in Julie's head. And fuck you, Tyler, fuck you. The ceiling was beginning to flake apart. It was distending like an infected belly, and holy hell, Julie was glad she had the suitcase. What erupted from the vents, arms everywhere, human arms, so many of them, starved to sinew and wattled skin, definitely had familial ties with your basic formulas, but what it was definitely not typical, and what this job was, was a mistake. And one way or another, this was not going to end well, and Julie understood all of this before Brad began to scream. Shit, said Julie, as everything went exactly to hell. What got to Julie, what she knew would resurface in her dreams, was the thing's guileless face, its glistening, peeled great face with eyes too widely spaced and the mouth too big, just smiling at her, serene. Julie concentrated, pulling all her strength and energy into her midsection, and gave out one wordless scream. A golden bolt of energy shot from her straight at the formulas. She sagged against the wall, exhausted for a second, as the light shredded off a dozen of the creature's arms. But not enough. Not nearly enough. Brad froze on the spot. Julie tried to grab the idiot, but the formalist shot toward him. She almost got his arm before the creature pulled him into a swaddling embrace, fingers hooking into his ears and the nooks of his mouth, prying his jaws open. It palmed his brow and gripped his hair, tugging in every direction until his hands were clutching sheafs of blonde follicles. Its arms split along the tibia, then the grains of its marrow, until there was a forest of them tendrilling over her intern's eyes, trying to worm around the organs, through the apertures, and into his skull. Brad had stopped screaming as he was now choking on the formulas. But the thing's smile, Julie couldn't look away from it. Or maybe Julie was lying to herself. She had no way of knowing, not now, not while her intern was going into seizures, his convulsions sending him sprawling backwards atop a hallway table. Flowers gouted through the air as he thrashed over the gleaming wood. A crystal vase shattered on the carpet. Fuck you, Tyler, Julie whispered under her breath. No part of it was shocked at Tyler's treachery, but the depth of it surprised her. Up until this point, she'd assumed her longevity was a value to him, 
Apparently not. Maybe he'd found someone willing to do his dirty work for less. Or was he just stupid? Brad went slack, a thin rill of drool snaking down his cheek. There, that was her window. Julie exploded forward. She slammed the suitcase down against the wall. I'm sorry, Brad, but this is really gonna hurt. Julie rolled up her sleeves and countered her way up thorns embedded in her forearm until she hit seven, then reached in and yanked. Barbed wire magic, in one way or another, had been around for centuries, a sacrosanct practiced in its original form, until kings and cartels realized pain didn't have to be holy. It merely needed to be obliterating. Still, you needed the right temperament, the right volume of don't give a fuck in your soul. Otherwise, it was pointless. Luckily, Julie was dysfunctional in all the right ways. <laughs> she tore the barbed wire from her arm, blood and tattered muscle and strands of warm fat spraying the wall. Pain shot through her whole body, almost slippery, and she gasped as her vision burned white along the fringe. But she knew this was the price, understood that this was what she had to pay, and that in this world, nothing came for free, especially not miracles. Julie twitched the wrist of her uninjured arm, and the barbed wire went rigid, thickening to a toothed obsidian blade. She brought it down on Brad's chest. The fabric of his sternum <clears throat> parted as easily as, the, as, his, as his Pendleton shirt, at which point Brad woke up and began screaming again. Julie crawled onto the table and strattered her butterfly intern. Where was the formalist? Where the fuck was the thing? Julie, having no other recourse, plunged her hands into Brad's entrails, probing beneath trembling lung and pounding heart, the latter thumping at a thumbing bird speed. Once or twice, her fingers brushed against the formulas, but the slickness of the abdominal cavity meant she couldn't get a grip. Come fucking out of there, Julie snarled to zero effect, peeling open her in turn further. Julie spooned out tangles of intestinal tract, setting yards of them in roping piles to the right of her. She yanked Brad's liver, his lungs, stomach. Nothing. Still nothing. There was no help. She'd have to pull out everything and throw it on the floor, waiting for something to move. When nothing did, she stabbed the organs with a bowie knife she pulled from her boot. But the innards just lay there, so she pulled out more until there was almost nothing left. Brad's hands twitched, but otherwise, he was still. On the floor, a kidney rolled over, one of its sides bulging with something under the skin. Julie grabbed it and squeezed like she was trying to choke it to death. Brad stopped moving. Julie shouted at him, Stay with me a little longer, asshole! As she did, something erupted from the kidney. The veins and arteries that fed the thing shot out like metal tough sinew, wrapping around Julie's hands and arms, heading for her face. The formless was clearly lost all interest in Brad and was making a play for her now. If she let it go on much longer, it would be in her brain. Julie, it hurts so much. Why did you cut me like that? said the formless in a breathy imitation of Brad's voice. Shut up, fuck me, she shouted, squeezing the erupting kidney as hard as she could with one hand. Julie brought the other hand to her mouth and bit her thumb again, smearing the blood all over the creature. When it dripped red, she whispered words so ancient she didn't completely understand them, but the creature went limp for a moment. She grabbed her knife to kill it, but whatever the power the spell had, she shrugged it off with disturbing speed. 
It shot at her face again. Julie barely dodged a whirlwind of arteries that got close enough to pull out a clump of her hair. Julie, you killed me. I trusted you, the thing said in Brad's voice. Whirling her whole body, Julie bashed the formless against the wall. From what felt like a million miles away, strange thoughts and images slammed into her brain. Numbers, ledger sheets, invoices, bank statements, and more. All the dull machinations of business. It was the formalist injecting the financial information it had stolen from its victim straight into Julie's head. The numbers and images meant nothing to her, someone who'd never even balanced a checkbook, but she couldn't help thinking that the creature was trying to bribe her. Take this gift and leave me alone. That fucking chance, she thought. More than ever, Julie wanted to end the formalist with another energy bolt, but those always left her weak and she couldn't risk that with it being so close. The creature had tendrils around her head now and was trying to wind them into her eyes and nose. The kidney itself bulged, distended to the size of a watermelon, the thin tissue on top stretched beyond the limit and about to break. Julie, it hurts. And that was it she knew. Pain. Like everything else in the world, the answer was pain. She held the ever-expanding formless out at arm's length and tensed her arms, extruding the barbs. Then she relaxed, allowing it to attack. The bloated thing shot at her face as she raised one arm, still wrapped in tendrils. When it hit the barbs, the formless split open, dumping rotten tissue and corrupt blood vessels on the floor. Julie saw it at the thing, chanting the ancient words again, getting, gutting the formless as thoroughly as she'd vivisected Brad. It screamed one more time and fell to the carpeted floor in a soggy pile. Julie yanked the tendril off her arms and head and kicked the creature away like a football, and she whirled around to the suitcase and opened it. Inside was a glistening set of human organs so perfect they'd make any surgeon swoon. Julie didn't waste time with niceties. She just grabbed fistfuls of innards and shoved them into Brad's empty gut. As she stuffed him like a Thanksgiving turkey, she had a moment of panic, wondering if they'd all fit or if she'd have to leave something out. A kidney or part of a liver. But in the end, everything slid into place like a soggy puzzle. And then she was done. She sewed Brad back together with thread that she'd been told was made from the feathers of an angel's wing. Brad blinked a couple of times, and Julie helped him sit up. What happened, he mumbled. You killed it, kiddo. Well, we did, but you were a big help. I'll give you, I'll give you the details when we get out of here. Julie stood and pulled Brad to his feet. He slumped against the wall for a moment and said, you know what's weird? I feel kind of good, like when I was a kid. Yeah, that's what having a brand new set of insides will do for you. <laughs> what? Later, let's get out of here. Julie put Brad's arm over her shoulder and helped walk him to the elevator. She stopped once to pick up one of the formerless hands she'd blown off earlier. Tyler wanted a trophy, and she liked having one she could slap him with. <laughs> When they got to the elevator, it started down with neither of them having to do anything. It was there, in those few moments of quiet, that Julie realized how much blood and gore had splattered on both her and Brad. There was no way a cab was going to pick him up. <laughs> Exhausted as they were, it was subway time again. <laughs> Fortunately, there was no one in the lobby but the doorman. He took one look at them and rushed over. What, what the fuck happened up there? Julie shrugged. We might have knocked over a table. 
he, he covered his mouth with his hand. Oh, shit, oh, God, this is my job. As Brad leaned against the counter, Julie raised a hand to the doorman. Not necessarily. What is that you're covered in? Is that blood? Listen to me. Me and my pal over there were just a couple of hooligans who broke in here and muscled you out of the way. There was nothing you could do about it. Got it? I'm so fired. I might go to jail. Oh, there's just one more thing, and you have no idea how sorry I am about it. Oh, God, what did you do upstairs? Julie pulled back her fist and punched the doorman in the face. He fell back and landed on his ass. Julie helped him up. I'm so sorry. I never hit the help, but you needed a black eye for the story to work. <laughs> that really hurt. I promise you 100% that I'm going to make up all of this to you soon. The doorman went back to the desk and leaned on it heavily. Whatever. Julie pulled Brad to the door saying, I owe you. Just go away, crazy lady, said the doorman. So she did. Thank you. So when's the book coming out? Did you tell us when the book was coming out? I can't remember. We don't know. Next oh, year. Okay. Well, next year. Good. Okay. And the, and the title again is? The Dead Take the A Train. Okay. The Dead Take the A Train. So look for it. It's coming from Nightfire, yes? Yes. Good. And uh, thank you all for coming. Hang out. You don't have to leave if you don't want to. And drink. And see you next month. You've been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. Check out our website at kgbfantasticfiction.org and click on support if you'd like to help keep the series going. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks for listening and see you next month.